Genesis uh, 49. Genesis 49. Before I teach the word this morning, I want to just ask prayer for Stuart Hunt, who will be filling his pulpit in Damascus, the First Baptist Church. God would be with him as he speaks, and that uh, likewise we both would be able to present the word well for God's glory. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can turn to you and know that your, your grace that, and the blood which flowed at Calvary covers it all. There is no more need for sacrifice, and we can come in underneath of your, your blood and know that through this new arrangement that you've made for us, we have the complete forgiveness of sins. We have fellowship with you. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit to bring us into deep fellowship with yourself. So as we look at this text, Father, help us to take courage, not in those people that we see around us, but that we'd encourage us ourselves in the Lord, that we would be um, confident not necessarily in our own offspring, but we're confident in you and you alone. Thank you for this text, and I ask, Father, that uh, you would just give us um, a good service. I pray, Father, that you would help Stuart Hunt as he speaks this morning, help him to be clear, help myself as well to be clear for your sake. In your name we pray, amen. Some of you may know the song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just all praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm. No, we won't go that far. It's actually one of those songs that uh, it never really ends. Uh, it's kind of like the Baby Shark song. Someone recently told me they went to a Baby Shark concert with their grandchildren. I had to ask myself, boy, what do we do for our grandchildren and children to do that? Um, but the Father Abraham song is a very simple song, so simple that the lyrics maybe even kind of lead us into a realm of not really understanding what it's speaking about. Um, you got to know a little bit of the backstory to, for it to make sense. And the song is based upon the Abrahamic covenant. That's the promise that God made to Abraham that he would adopt Abraham and his descendants into his own family and care for them and protect them and build a nation out of them that would bless the world. That is the backstory. However, as you read the story of Abraham through the pages of Scripture, you note that, yes, relationship with God is gracious, but there is also responsibility that comes in that relationship we might call this a loving relationship with God is reciprocal. It, 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 it is a healthy relationship when the object of affection returns that love. Just as in a family, as parents love their children, we, we want the children to reciprocate and share that love back. But also, thinking about the story of Israel as a nation, you'll notice that often... Israel didn't love God well in return for the grace and kindness 
of the Heavenly Father. In fact, uh, Israel was what might, might call a mixed multitude of faith and unbelief. It was a mixed, uh, mixed society of those who had believed and those who did not. In fact, uh, looking back on the story of the Jews, Paul in the New Testament in Romans chapter 9 said this, that they are all Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He recognized the special relationship, but then he also noted that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all the children of Abraham are his simply because they're his offspring. Paul was noting that not all who had that special privilege, in fact, from the heart, believed and loved God in return. And so, as you look over the story of, of Israel, you see a, a lack of love and a lack of return for God's grace, a lack of belief, a lack of obedience. They, in many ways, look like spiritual orphans, disconnected. But something radically different happened when Christ came into the world. Christ, in his sacrifice, created a new family that's not defined upon ethnicity, but upon the forgiveness of sins. So that all who put their trust in Jesus Christ are by virtue of Christ's atonement put into the family of God. And regardless of ethnicity, sex, nationality, or social standing, all who are God's family return love to him. That is the virtue of the new covenant and the gift of the Holy Spirit that's given to us. We have a connection to the living God that drives us back to him. And I bring all of this up at the offset because I want us to recognize that as what we're going to see in this text, Jacob giving a blessing to his children... And as he's doing so, he's looking at his offspring and his heart is being ripped out because he knows that it's not going to turn out well for all of them. Not all of them will develop a deep relationship with God. And we need to understand that as New Testament believers, we have a unique relationship with God that transcends ethnicity. It transcends gender. It transcends all the normal social conventions that might separate us normally. Because of Christ, we are one in him. And so Jacob's reading this. He's, he's, he's issuing out this blessing. And he's ripped apart. And he steps back and he, verse 18, we're going to get to it, but I want you to look at it with me. In verse 18, he's going through a list of names, and he, he stops, he pauses, and he says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. He cries out for mercy for his children. He's in great distress. And I think it's helpful for us to realize that as we think through 
our own families. And the future maybe even of a church, thinking of your grandchildren, we ought to be like Jacob, putting our hope not in our offspring, but in God himself. And so as we read these, we see a mixed multitude of belief and unbelief. And in the middle of it, Jacob says, Lord, I'm waiting for your salvation. And this is the idea that I want us to really come to as we read these names, that we ought to be putting our hope in the Lord for salvation of our offspring and not in our offspring themselves. It is the Lord of grace and mercy that we cry out to. David knew the heart of God, and there was a time when David had sinned, and the effect was going to have a devastating consequence upon the nation. And in 2 Samuel 24, he said this, I am in great distress. I cannot decide which punishment I ought to request. He said, let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hands of men. And this is the attitude I think that we need to have when we think of our families, we think of, of the church and, and the grace of God. We need to be thinking that we need to be putting our hope in him and not in the people that we see around us. So put your hope in the Lord and not your offspring. So let's now look at the text. And what we have here is kind of like a picture album in chapter 49. Uh, Jacob is kind of holding up to us in some senses like the family picture album, and we're going to be looking at a variety of people. And I would encourage you, um, as we go through this, I hope you took a bulletin this morning, because in the bulletin there is an insert, and there is a map on the other side that I think might be helpful for you as we go through this. Uh, maybe you didn't pick up, maybe your Bible has maps in the back, but as we read through and I make comment, I'm going to reference this map just a little bit, not overly, um, but we're going to work through verses 3 through 15 as a start, and we're going to see how uh, Leah's sons demonstrate the truth that the last shall be first. And uh, knowing the... Uh, family structure of Jacob. Jacob had four wives. He had um, Leah, he had Rachel, he had Zilpah and Bilhah as wives. And uh, there were 12 descendants that came out of that, those, that family. And so Leah is the first that we're looking at. Let's read um, actually just the first few verses up through verse 4. It says, then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, and listen to, your, to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, and he went up to my. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Reuben is characterized here by the effect, the outcome of immorality. Um, kind of an obscure reference to incident that occurred, 
back when the family was living in the land of Canaan, that Reuben had relations with one of his father's wives, Bilhah, particularly. It's in Genesis 35, verse 22. But it's noteworthy that as Jacob is talking about the future of his son, Reuben, he's pointing out that the effect of sin here is that there's instability in his life and inability to lead. Marriage was designed for an exclusive relationship between a man and a woman. One woman, one man for life. And Reuben violated that, and it created this dysfunction in Jacob's family. Um, Jacob's family was dysfunctional already because of the inclusion of more than one wife, but Reuben's actions also made it that much worse. I think it's helpful for us to realize in a society that has taken down all, all thinking regarding marriage that we live in a very unjust world. When people do not follow God's program for marriage, they're committing not just a personal sin, they're creating an injustice to other people, other women, other men. What they're doing is um, creating an environment where a person is unable to get the personal fulfillment that they were entitled to, that is an injustice. When a person violates another uh, individual, they take away the rights of that individual. And here, we have immorality that creates an emotional instability. You see, God gave intimacy to one man and one woman for the purpose of being like glue that holds them together. What happens when that glue is frequently applied in other places than where it was supposed to be intended? It becomes less sticky with time. It creates an intense emotional instability in a person. And this is what's being communicated in the life of Reuben. Reuben, who ought to have been the strong one in the family, the one who led the family, is actually unable to because he is emotionally unstable because of his, his violation of this, the covenant relationship that God had established. We have two additional sons. Let's look at verses 5 through 7. We have two other sons. Um, and actually, before I move on, on the back side, you will see a map. Reuben is listed as having territorial rights, and if he's in the lower right corner, um, he is actually on the outside of the uh, Jordan River, and he is going to be one of those tribal regions that will fall to enemies quicker than the rest of the country. He is residing there, and God is speaking truth in the moment of his immorality, but also looking beyond and showing that sin has consequence, and he's going to suffer the, the, official, the first waves of attack against the city, the, the nation. Looking at the next two, Simon, Simeon, excuse me, and Levi, verses 5 through 7. 
Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. And I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Um, I've labeled these two brothers, they're kind of taken together here as having a characteristic of unjust wrath. You can see the, the references to anger in there. And, and uh, the hamstringing of oxen, it's a, that's the, where you cut the, the hams, like right on the, right on the, on your calf, right, right where your ankle connects. And when you do that to an oxen, you take away its ability to be able to even plow. It can't get the footing. It is absolutely senseless to do to, an, to a creature. And what is being communicated in this is that their anger crippled another people in a senseless way. And this is a reference back to the days when they were living in Canaan and uh, Jacob's daughter Dinah went out to be with the people of the land. And he, they went, she went out and learned unsavory practices. And the prince of Shechem saw her, wanted her, defiled her, and then tried to negotiate after the fact to marry her with the family. Well, that enraged the brothers, rightly should have enraged the brothers. It really should have enraged the father. But what happened was that they tried to negotiate to have a... Um, a bargaining relationship with uh, the people of Shechem. And in the process, they decided that if the men of that city would circumcise themselves, that they would make arrangements to trade with them and become like one big, large family with them. Well, in the process of soreness, these two boys took their swords and went out and slaughtered all the men of the city. It It was an unjust rage, overkill. And what Jacob is saying here is that in the end, they're going to be divided. They're not going to have, they're not the ones who ought to be leading this country of, of Israel. And they're going to be scattered. Uh, Levi is not going to have a territory on the map. You see there's no territorial claim for them. They're kind of scattered through cities throughout the land, and they're going to serve in another capacity. Simeon is found right in the middle of Judah. And over time, Simeon just kind of dissipates as Judah surrounds it and dwells and envelopes it. And you see in this the injustice of wrath. Anger for self-gratification is sin. And I think that we ought to observe and learn as we look at this as, as well. The third, the fourth son, actually is the son who, who gains preeminence. Let's read verse 8 and following. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub, and from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, 
for the ruler's staff from between his feet until the tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He, was wa- he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. And so in this text, what you're seeing is images that refer to kingship. Judah is described as a lion, the most regal of beasts. He's given dominion. He's given the scepter. He's given something that's going to last forever. The scepter is not going to depart out of his realm. It's speaking of eternity. Prosperity, there's tribute that will come to him. And so, as you look at this, you think, what what made Judah different than the rest of the boys? Didn't they all sell Joseph into slavery? I mean, they were wholesome kids. Well, Judah's youth is being deliberately overlooked here because he repented of his sins. He was the one who willingly volunteered to be a substitute for his younger brother Benjamin in, in Egypt. He repented of his sins of his youth, and his willingness to give up is a direct reflection on humility. And that's exactly what God does. God gives grace to the humble. And this is the pattern that exists throughout all of Scripture, is that the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The preeminent one who thinks much of themselves will be humbled, and the humble will be exalted. Of course, we also know through the pages of Scripture that out of Judah came the kings. David was a descendant of Judah, and of course, Jesus Christ, the great descendant out of Judah. And again, this is God's evidence here of blessing those who would repent of their sin. This is the kind of action that Reuben should have taken. This is the action that Levi and also Simeon should have taken. They should have humbled themselves and repented of their sins, and they too could receive blessing. Zebulun, look at verse 13. They pick up a little bit faster pace here because there's a little bit less detail given about each one of these. Um, But verse 13, we have Zebulun, who is the sixth boy out of the line of Leah. He's actually the last boy born, but he's elevated slightly ahead of Issachar, who is the fifth born. And again, another principle about the, the last being first, being elevated. Judah gets the preeminence. But you see Zebulun here. Zebulun shall dwell by the shore of the sea, and he shall become a haven for ships. And his border uh, shall be at Sidon. Uh, Zebulun was the youngest boy who was born, as I said. He's elevated because Issachar has characteristics of laziness that are described in his description. Um, Zebulun had his borders near the seashore at one time, as you look at the map on the back, but gradually he was pushed back away from the seashore because of the Phoenicians in the north, put pressure on Asher, and Asher pushed pressure back on Zebulun, but his original territory went to the seashore. But the real instructive piece here is actually by looking at Issachar, 
and his laziness, verse 14 to 15. He's described as a strong donkey, but yet he's crouching between the sheepfolds. He's, 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 he's got strength, but yet he's timid. He's sitting back in the sheepfold. He saw that a resting place was good. He liked the resting place a little bit too much. And that the land was pleasant, and so he bowed his shoulder to bear, and he became a servant at forced labor. Issachar here is pictured, as one commentator put it, as being lazy, unassertive, and perhaps a fat. I mean, he's strong, he's got capacity, he's built like an ox, kind of. Definitely a strong donkey, but he nevertheless enjoys and he refuses to work because he enjoys being pampered, and he becomes the servant of others. Something here I think that's helpful for us to see. You know that if we do not disciple, excuse me, if we do not discipline ourselves to be efficient, to be prudent, and to be busy, then others will discipline us. People who can't organize their own schedules will find that over time others will organize their schedules for them. It's important for us to realize is that we can become underneath of the tyranny of the urgent because we don't, we're not proactive in organizing ourselves. The truth is that if we don't control our schedules, our schedules will control us. The book of Proverbs says, Diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in forced labor. Now, from time to time, emergencies occur that we cannot control. But if motivation is crisis that moves us to action, we need to take a look at our lives to see whether or not we have inherently some degree of desire for comfort over effort. I think it's helpful for us to look at the tribes and to make observations, but in the, in, the, in the general whole, the children of Leah show us that the last shall be first. God is gracious. He is compassionate. He does offer forgiveness for sins, and that's where we ought to put our confidence is in His mercy. And we ought not take confidence in ourselves or even our offspring. Let's look at the next group of boys. Verses 16 to 21, we have the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah's sons. And uh, these each were kind of handmaids to Leah and also Rachel. They were introduced into the home because they felt the pressure to produce offspring. And it became a, a, a kind of a race between Rachel and Leah to see who could have the most children, and uh, we have them sorted here for us. Let's look at the first. Verse 16 and 17, we have Dan, and he pictures in many ways a spiritual blindness. Dan, verse 16, shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. It, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. And then in verse 18, he pauses, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And so here we see a picture of someone who's vulnerable. The image of a serpent on the road represents a tribe that is small, 
yet dangerous, aggressive, strikes, and it has the ability to overthrow nations, but he's in a vulnerable place. He's out in the open path. A snake ought to actually be in the bushes, right? A, a snake that's in the, the tire track is going to get run over. It's vulnerable. And uh, during the time of the judges, the tribe of Dan moved from its tribal allotment. If you look at the map on the coastline of the Mediterranean, Dan was there. That was their allotment. But they decided out of rebellion not to settle the land. And what they did is they removed themselves and they went up north to Laish. You can see a little uh, blob of blue right up in the middle of Naphtali, right at the top. And... (laughs) <laughs> they did this out of rebellion. They were told by God to, to settle the land there, but they refused to. And so that region got enveloped by the Philistines and caused problems for the nation for many, many years. But Dan was vulnerable because of an unwillingness to follow what God had prescribed. This is an example of spiritual blindness and unwillingness to follow God's word. Yet nevertheless, a man by the name of Samson came out of this tribe, but yet he was a vulnerable person, and he fell underneath the weight of the temple of Dagon and was crushed even as he crushed nations himself. So, as again, we come to verse 18. It doesn't look too pretty, does it? This is not encouraging. It's not exciting. Like, when I pull out the scrapbook and show the pictures on the wall or on Facebook, what do I want to present? I don't want to present this. But yet, this is the whole point. We ought not to be taking our confidence in our offspring. We ought to be taking our confidence in the Lord and putting hope in Him. And so, let's move on to Gad, verse 19. He is described as being raided. Um, Verse 19, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. The word Gad sounds like the word to raid. And yet, this is a kind of an inverted blessing because actually it demonstrates a person who's going to be having a troubled life, but they're going to keep striking back and they're always, always having to, they're very unsettled, they're going to have to keep fighting. And if you look at where Gad is on the map, you'll see that they're on the other side of the Jordan River. They're kind of in the, the no man's land, right on the front edge of where the enemies will be. And they're going to be continually being pressed uh, throughout all of their existence. Um, Asher, verse 20, means here, here we have someone who is wealthy. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Asher is on the, the north shore of the Mediterranean, a very fertile land, and yet uh, he is found up underneath of the pressure of the Phoenicians and Tyre and Sidon. They were able to trade with them and make lots of money. But at the same time, wealth can cause you to forget God. Wealth is a good thing, but it is a tool. But it is also a tool that comes with a potential trap. It can actually draw our hearts away from God. And the north, uh, northern tribe of Asher was the furthest from the uh, spiritual worship in Jerusalem. And so they had to make decisions of whether or not they would leave their abundant crops and travel down. They had to prioritize. Their wealth actually became a hindrance to them in later passages of the 
Old Testament. Naphtali, verse 21, says, Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Naphtali here is described as a swift deer, one who bears beautiful fawns. There is a wildness in this picture, an image of a lack of domesticity that just kind of just a free spirit. And actually, this is the region in which Jesus grew up in Nazareth. And it was what people would tend to say is like the, the kind of the wild area, like the Wild West. Uh, one of the disciples said, can there any, anything good come out of Nazareth? And uh, if you think about it, the Wild West sometimes is, we're, we live in the Wild West here in Wayne County sometimes. People will look at us and say, what are you, you guys out in Wayne County, you guys are independent, you know, you're, I'm telling you, we're free spirits here in Wayne County. But there is a danger with freedom is that freedom can create its own bondage of another kind in which we are so free-spirited that we, in the end, may be ruled by, by other things. And so, again, we really are looking at maybe two out of ten children who are potentially receiving what we might like to think as a real blessing. The last two bring back a little bit more encouragement. We have Joseph and also Benjamin, the last two sons. And I see a description in here of strength that is available to them. Verse 22 to 27, we read, And Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring, and his branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of, Egypt, of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. So Benjamin, excuse me, Joseph here is described as being very fruitful. You see it. The word blessed comes up multiple times. And you think about Joseph's life. He had a rough life. But yet, in spite of the rough treatment by his brothers who were pictured as archers shooting arrows at him, he flourishes even in the dungeons of Egypt. He outgrows every responsibility that was handed to him. He's like that fruitful bough that just can't be contained in the garden. It just keeps going and going and going. Every corner of his life is blessing. And you notice that there is not the reference to Manasseh and Ephraim here, but they are subsumed underneath of Joseph. He is going to receive the double portion. And as you look on the, on the little map there, you see Manasseh in central. They're so big that they have, to be, they have to live on the other side of the Jordan River. There's just so many of them. And then Ephraim is in the center, and he's going to start to outgrow his space and actually push the open areas that Dan had left open and going to fill in that area as well. Just exactly 
the kind of blessing that Jacob is foreseeing here is going to come to him. The last boy is Benjamin. Benjamin. This young boy is described as a warrior, verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, devouring the prey, and at the evening, dividing the spoil. A ravenous wolf that shares his prey with his cubs. It's a metaphor of bravery, of skill in war. Who came from the tribe of Benjamin? Saul did. Now, we might not have a favorable opinion of Saul, but you know what also came up out of Benjamin? A whole warrior class that it took David nearly half his lifetime to be able to win them over to his side. He had it, Benjamin was a warrior class, and that's evident uh, through the history and unfolding of the story of Israel. So here we are, we've come through this, we've looked at all of these children, we have Jacob on the edge of his life, he's wanting to go back and have his body, you know, have his children take his body back to the land of Canaan. In verse uh, 28 through 33, we won't read the verses right now, but he describes his wish to be interned with Abraham and with Isaac in the land of Canaan. I can picture Jacob, his body turning over inside himself as he's issuing these blessings. It's not hopeful. Less than a, maybe a third of his children actually have a decent outlook. The future for his children is uncertain. It's very frightening. And in spite of God's commitment to Israel, many did not honor their relationship with God. There was an absence of reciprocation, a lack of a loving relationship. And so as he prays in verse 18, he's, he's signaling that he can't put his hope in his offspring. He has to put his hope in the Lord. Yet God was weaving through the descendants of Jacob a, a new plan, a plan that would also encompass all of humanity. God was planning to create a new heart in people to have the capacity to love God in return. Christ would come and he would create a new relationship between God and man. No longer would there be a national adoption, but individuals from all nations could come to him. And so today, as you think about the family of God, it's defined not by ethnicity, it's defined by the forgiveness of sin. The new family of God is defined by the new birth. Those who would call are born again. So I think it's important for us to help to think about a couple of applications as we come off on the other side of this text. The first is this. What does the family of God consist of? We as a church ought not be a mixed multitude of believers and unbelievers. 
Because Christ has come and he has paid for our sins, God is creating a new family of people who are regenerate, people who are born again. And so when we think about membership in the body of Christ, we ought to be concerned about the testimony of faith that a person presents. We want to call ourselves a true body, a true family of Christ. And so we ought to be focused upon not just a mixed multitude of people who have grown up in the church, but people who have genuinely put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ in him alone. The importance of regenerate church membership cannot be overstated. It's one of the reasons why we don't baptize infants. Infants cannot express faith in Christ. And it is true that not everyone who comes into an assembly and sits in the pews is necessarily regenerate. It's also true that not everyone who makes a verbal profession is genuinely converted. But it's through the fruit that you know them. And that's why we emphasize a regenerate church membership. Being a member of a church is a commitment to be reciprocating love to God and to one another. This is what discipleship is. Discipleship is a lifelong commitment that requires that we covenant together for accountability as followers of Jesus Christ. Membership is a cooperative to guard the name of Jesus Christ so that when somebody says, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, that their actions also demonstrate that they are followers of Jesus Christ. I think there's also a second application here that we ought to take from this is that as we Yes, may fight for the purity of the church. We also ought to fight for the spiritual well-being of our homes. We ought to have a hope in the mercy of God for our offspring, but we ought to have a hope that recognizes that we have a role and a responsibility in making the best spiritual opportunity for our children and our grandchildren. What if Jacob had worked harder to fight for his family put more into instructing his children. That little text in the earlier account of Reuben going in and defiling his his father's wife, it says that Jacob heard about it. We don't hear anything that he did anything about it. And at the end of his life, he's rebuking it. Did he just keep peace at all cost? I mean, he didn't even really rebuke Simeon and Levi, when they slaughtered all those people, he actually saw it as a potential gain and win for the family. He even got some land out of the deal. He got a little slope of mountain that that was his out of it. What if Jacob had have guarded Dinah and not allowed her to run with the women of the land and pick up their, their ways? Yes, certainly, children can be guarded and then when they become older they do their own thing 
But it's important for us as parents to recognize that we have a role and a responsibility even as we hope in the mercy of God. We ought not to neglect neglect our discipline. We ought to be putting our hope in the Lord, not in our offspring. We have to be careful that we're not creating a child-centered home where the whole home revolves around the child. We ought to bring those children to revolve around us in the direction that we're going in as followers of Christ. What might have happened if Jacob's household had been guided? I don't know. I don't know. Those are hypotheticals. But we do know that God honors those who honor him. We do know that those who repent of their sins, God is merciful to forgive. In fact, you see that in the life of Judah. He becomes the preeminent one because he humbled himself and followed after God and followed God's heart. So it's important for us as we reflect upon a kind of a, kind of a clunky passage. And I know that this is a clunky passage. But in this passage is the word of God. It is the word of God for us that we would not put our hope in our offspring, but that we would put our hope in the Lord and that we would follow him first in all our ways. So may we, like Jacob, look to the future. Let us put our hope in the Lord and not our offspring. Let us pray.